Hey folks, you're listening to To Know the Land, uh, broadcasting on 93.3 CFRU at the University of Guelph or online at toknowtheland.com or through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. On today's show, I get to talk to Lauren Van Patter and Leslie Sampson about urban coyotes and how we can interact with them better and perhaps dissuade uh, their... I don't want to use the word cohabitation, but I'll use it for now. I know that there's some suggested other vocabulary, and we'll get to that. But could I get you two to introduce yourselves? You go first, Lauren. Sure, thanks. So I'm Lauren Van Potter. I'm a PhD candidate at Queen's University in Kingston. Um, and I'm an animal geographer or a, a critical human environment geographer. So in my work, um, I think about the relationships between humans and various animal species uh, in space and in terms of both sort of social and cultural dynamics, as well as more ecological um, dynamics as well and how those all interplay. So some of my previous research looked at feral cats um, within urban communities. And now my doctoral work, uh, I've been working with uh, Leslie and looking at coyotes uh, in urban communities, which has been really fascinating. That's great. Oh, hi, I'm Leslie Sampson, and I am the founding executive director of the NGO Coyote Watch Canada. And within our organization, we have uh, just absolutely fabulous resources, advisory, science advisory, and we essentially create painted response teams that are able to not only delve into development of more compassionate policy within agency, but also offer on the ground expertise and response for human and canid interactions. And so when we had the opportunity, um, and although, you know, I'm recognized on the paper, I will say that it's uh, our canid response team on the ground that offered so much insight into the paper, which I'm sure Lauren would agree with. Um, mm -hmm. Being able to partner, uh, not just community science, but also actual rigorous scientific methodology to provide a template or a, a footprint on the ground for humans and canids to get to a point where there's some pretty well-established opportunities for co-flourishing on the land. And I'm just very grateful, uh, first of all, to talk about the paper, but secondly, to be able to provide that through rigorous scientific methodology um, for agencies uh, and just, you know, citizens alike in, you know, recognizing and appreciating and celebrating uh, these animals in the land and how we can create uh, compassionate wildlife resilient communities. Your descriptions of your work just got me really excited. I, I really <laughs> appreciate this. Um, I found out about your work together uh, through an article on The Conversation published November 5th, 2020, How Coyotes and Humans Can Learn to Coexist in Cities giving some of the essential details of the paper so far. Can you describe the article a little bit? 
Sure. Yeah. So Leslie and I um, co-authored that and it was, um, it was based on our paper, which came out last month in the journal human wildlife interactions, uh, which advances a set of best practices for um, aversion conditioning, uh, also termed humane hazing um, as a a management tool to mitigate human coyote conflict in urban areas. Um, And so I'm sure we'll we'll get into that a bit more um, later on, but uh, it's really about thinking what opportunities are available for non-lethal management, because that is a priority in many communities, Um, but an area where there's still a lot of uncertainty in terms of the published literature and the best practices uh, within communities and how we can mobilize sort of creative and effective tools um, to prevent, you know, this uh, often escalation of conflict that results from ineffective response to uh, to various scenarios. Um, so we had published that article together in Human Wildlife Interactions, and we, we wanted to sort of get the word out about our research, so then wrote it up in the conversation as well, um, hinting at some of the ways that we challenge the assumptions that are prevalent within both sort of uh, the, the policy realm as well as the scientific realm when it comes to who coyotes are, um, how they behave in urban areas, and what um, management opportunities are available to us. I appreciate that. It's, it's, it's how many times I've heard of, like recently in Kitchener, using traps and things that could potentially not be lethal, but also cause a lot of harm. So thinking of ways of mitigating and lessening the harm that we cause. I was wondering though, to get an overview to sort of to start, do y'all have any idea of numbers of coyotes living in urban environments? With canid populations, in particular Eastern coyotes, which we have here in Ontario, it's extremely difficult to give a general conclusion in terms of population dynamics. So if we're looking at individual families or clans of coyotes, we can build on that ground knowledge. And so who's staying within the home range, who has dispersed, how far out of the family home range have they dispersed. So we would do cataloging of individual coyotes based on their morphology, which is a fancy term for how they look because every coyote looks so different. Uh, But we, the focusing on the numbers, I think, uh, I think we can go a little bit deeper into that query and ask ourselves where are coyotes establishing? How are they establishing their home ranges? And how can we be prepared for the current uh, populations that do live amongst human beings and you know how can we prepare communities in the future to meet those challenges in a thoughtful compassionate educated way so in Ontario aside from a few select wildlife management units where the Algonquin wolf inhabits uh, it's open season for coyotes 365 days a year they can be trapped shot and so that again has a bearing on the actual hard data mm-hmm. in terms of the numbers so you can look at how many animals are 
killed to use their fur or how many animals are, you know, lethally removed due to conflict, which those numbers are kind of gray because they're not really, uh, there's no statistical landing platform for that information. So, um, but getting back to, you know, as the premise of our paper, you know, coyotes can, they are established throughout most major cities in North America. So the, it's open season all year round on the coyotes. Yes. And that's and deemed, is that deemed because they're, they're, they're considered a pest species? Well, uh, let's maybe go, go from a compassionate conservation scientific perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Lauren will be able to speak to this too. Policies were made a long time ago. Yeah. When colonization took place here. And I mean, the Eastern Coyote is in the landscape now because of the extermination of the wolves that used to, this used to be their, their um, original ancient landscape. And so um, there really isn't, there isn't a justified reason for policy that has open season on a sentient mammal but mm-hmm. that's that's where that's the climate that we're working in right now. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And this that includes during um, pup rearing season. Uh, initially, when mom is feeding those pups in the den, and her life partner is bringing her nourishment through the hunting and foraging um, activities that he would be doing. So if the female is killed before the pups are weaned, then those pups would um, starve to death. And that runs so counter to understood population dynamics of coyotes when you talk about like removing them from the landscape and that just offers new opportunities for other, you know, transients or other coyotes to move in. It's- Yes. Yeah, sounds pretty outdated. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, ample evidence that centuries of active extermination um, has not had the effect that it intended to on coyote populations. And so um, when communities are still sort of calling for culls um, as as a means of reducing perceived conflicts, um, I think that, you know, there's just the science is so clear that that is not going to have the effects that that um, we want and also is obviously not a, a humane or, or sustainable response either. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible these, these control methods that folks have practiced because the coyotes have spread their range farther than any other North American mammal since colonization. They've also gotten bigger and it's just like, it's through opposition, this animal becomes more resilient, more adaptive, expands their range and just grows physically larger in size. It's 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 incredible their resilience. Well, part of that, um, when we look at the body weight and the body mass, here there's a little bit of contribution in there from the Algonquin wolf going back over a century. But essentially, these canids that are here in Ontario are really not 
they're not large animals in the sense of they're not they're not uh, tipping the scale like even an Algonquin wolf would. But I think there's a lot of mythology in the media and what's uh, put in. Uh, you know, in articles and uh, social media, that these animals are so huge. And Lauren can attest, I mean, when you're handling them during rescue, uh, you come to appreciate how very tiny they are. So you're looking at an average weight of 35 to 38 pounds, or 14 kilograms, depending on who the audience is. But it's, a, they're a small canid. They're so long and lean, that they're uh, size and their pre presence is often overestimated by folks in the community that really don't have experience with coyotes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, the emotional scale is a lot larger than perhaps the physical. Yes. What, what, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. We were working in one community um, with a particular individual and some residents walked by and said, oh, that looks like the coyote who lives around our place. But the one we've got in our place is way bigger. He's huge, he's a monster. Um, and, you know, we started talking and they live just around the corner. And so we said, you know, no, actually this would be the same individual, that's his territory, but he was just sleeping under a tree. And uh, the people, you know, looking at him again and seeing him in this different context, he had looked like a whole different animal to them, much smaller when they saw him out of a context of fear, I suppose. Mm -hmm. You feel like there's a lot of fear still in, in urban communities about coyotes? I think there's misinformation and myth that has been repeated throughout time that it ends up being considered fact. And I think that adds to the whole uh, dimension of you know, misunderstanding and what we don't understand, we fear. And, you know, people, once they understand and appreciate and come to know who these animals are, many times over, there's a, a real shift in their internal belief system and their ideals, because this canid is part of the same family as our domestic dog and the wolf and the jackal. So when, when you're looking from the lens of fear, you're really not going to be able to understand why they're responding the way they are to us. And, you know, media is a, a great thing. I always say the devil or the darling, because it depends on how the narrative is on these animals and events and scenarios that take place we can really vilify them and, and boy, do they ever sell. You know, they, they can be shared stories that aren't even validated or investigated. Um, they can be shared hundreds of thousands of times and then that becomes the new reality for these animals. I recently was speaking with uh, Dr. Mark Elbrock about uh, cougar populations, mountain lions yes. out west, and he has the same story to tell that often vilified, but likely no need, and and like there there's really no no substantiating evidence to to be so vilified, and I that, I was wondering about that in like we have the media's portrayal because they're trying to sell something, um, their product that is the media, and. We have also like maybe scientific portrayals and I would 
probably position you two on on the front lines or closer to the front lines than I could ever be. But I was wondering, how would you see that cities themselves or city managers or, or wildlife control in cities, how are they perceiving uh, coyotes right now? How are they framing coyotes to their citizens? Is it as a threat, fellow citizen? Is it just like, here's something we need to learn how to coexist with? How are cities framing this? We have seen incredible shifts to absolutely uh, fabulous coexistent programs or, you know, depending on the level of agency, it would be a, a coyote response or a coyote protocol. If you look at larger cosmopolitan cities like Toronto, you have Oakville, Niagara Falls, uh, you know, right across Brampton, in Ontario, right throughout West, the shifts in how they look at this animal in, in the community, the benefits, and really heavy in the education promotion. I've, I just am very feeling very grateful and blessed to be able to partner and work with these communities as, as well as conduct our research within these communities that have absolutely solid frameworks to prepare community members and not only the resident, but their staff. We do a lot of training for first responders, whether it's law enforcement or animal agencies. And Lauren has been in on uh, many of those training workshops and it is just incredible. Um, it's, it's interesting to and Lauren, maybe she'll uh, elaborate on this, even in the response agencies, how often there's uh, a lot more misinformation than there is uh, fact. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, it's, it's such a challenging um, situation in many cases, because this can be a, a very polarizing issue because of all of the misinformation. Um, so I think, you know, often city managers find themselves in a really challenging position of um, having to sort of mediate between segments of the population who are very tolerant, uh, very compassionate and really wanting to do what they can to promote coexistence with other species in urban areas. Um, but then other segments of the population who maybe have these fears and uh, misconceptions and are very resistant to that messaging. Um, so I think, uh, you know, communities are increasingly increase, uh, understanding the importance of effective education um, efforts and, and ways to get people to understand who these various animals are, um, you know, coyotes being one of the most contentious urban uh, wildlife. Um, and, and then coming up with protocols, and this is where, you know, Coyote Watch Canada and partnerships uh, with with Leslie and her team are just so valuable uh, within communities to sort of get the protocols in place, get the big picture view of what can be done to um, work towards coexistence. You talked about the protocols. Can you tell me what you mean and uh, get a little bit deeper on some of the suggestions made in your paper? So I'll just step back a little bit in terms of the beginning, the origin of protocol for us. We realized uh, when Coyote Watch Canada actually became 
a more robust organization, we could see the gaps in terms of identified and effective response for not just residents, but agency personnel. And in that awareness, we created a wildlife strategy framework, which has four integral cornerstones, investigation, education, prevention and enforcement. And so when we engage in the various partnerships and communities, we encourage strongly that they are working towards fulfilling those four cornerstones. And within those four cornerstones, the coexistence programs are born. And so the methodologies of response, being able to be in the field and identify and assess and evaluate what is actually happening. More often than not, if you go back even 10 years ago, a lot of times there were very wide assumptions made with respect to what was actually happening in the community. And so when you do the footwork in the field work, which was so exciting for uh, Lauren and myself to be able to do that in partnership because there's just so much to learn from these animals. You realize that the coyote is the eco thermometer for every community that they live. And when we are on the mark and doing everything well, conflict is minimal. Encounters that are negative are minimal. When we're not fulfilling those four cornerstones and having a good understanding about who these animals are, how our behavior and our response to them impacts their response to us, that's a key point. So as, as that eco-thermometer, we essentially can look at behavior, look at uh, video footage, and we have a really good solid baseline and benchmark to understand, okay, what do we need to do next? We've got to find the who's feeding, remove the attractants, and then do our aversion conditioning if needed, which is the essence of our research. And we have seen monumental results in the field together, Lauren and myself, with uh, delivering of aversion conditioning for the, you know, an animal that's struggling to, to raise their family in a very urbanized location. I think that really speaks to the four, yeah, the four cornerstone approach and how important every facet of that is. And um, yeah, I, uh, being able to witness sort of firsthand the impacts of um, of things like feeding or food attractants and how that shapes uh, coyote behavior and as well as interactions with domestic dogs. That was another big one that um, uh, that became sort of central to some of our work together. Um, and then being able to, yeah, I guess witness this change in behavior, you know, a lot of what we challenge in our paper is this assumption that um, that coyotes sort of become inherently, certain individuals become inherently a problem animal who is uh, habituated and, um, you know, is, is therefore a risk to humans. Um, this sort of common assumption that is never really uh, supported by a whole lot of, of concrete 
uh, evidence. Um, and then when the experience of the Canada response team have been um, quite different, you know, that even individuals who have been quite food conditioned, their behavior has been influenced through people's intentional feeding or not managing food attractants on their property. Um, and maybe they have become quite visible in the community as a result. Uh, those behaviors can still be reshaped very effectively through deploying the methodology that we described through the, these aversion conditioning techniques. Um, so that that was a, a really um, important part of our research and what I was able to witness it through the field work. Can we talk about the aversion conditioning techniques? Because I think that these methods that y'all outline our best practices for within the paper are really useful. And especially in the context as outlined in the paper that not only city managers or city wildlife staff or police, but everybody should understand these techniques so as to sort of diversify and the impact. Um, what are some of these aversion conditioning techniques that folks can learn about or maybe even practice in their home space when they encounter coyotes? So this is always the exciting part for me because uh, to be able to bridge that gap of on the ground response methodology and then, you know, kind of connect that into the science domain, which, you know, we're, we're forever grateful doing this research with Lauren. And um, I will say that at all times, our measurement and our parameters for ethical interactions with uh, coyotes was at, always at the forefront. And that's uh, one of the things that I really appreciated about Lauren is that we were really tightly connected in terms of maintaining solid ethics and understanding individuals and then individual families. And so when we, for example, were in one community and the parents had to move their two young, young pups just recently weaned from mom and they ended up uh, existing in a culvert while mom was away most of the time and dad was uh, very committed at protecting and providing food resources. Mom was very uh, frightened of the fast traffic and the human presence there. But we, the coyote actually dad, we called him Blondie. And he actually taught us so much. You know, the methods that I've always used is being very clear and concise. It's fine for me. I've never met a coyote that did not respond in a, a healthy way and a safe way for that animal. Um, but to actually impart that skill set and knowledge to the general population, it becomes a little bit uh, trickier. So for me to use my body and my messaging to communicate, as Lauren did at this location, the expectation of, uh, you know, transcending that response to the general public, you have to provide visible tools. And that's where the green garbage bag method became so valuable because mm. 
not only does it work, it's effective. It's something that if folks are watching, if we're having to do a site-specific aversion conditioning deployment, people can see that we're doing that with, uh, with intention. And so we're not just harassing coyotes because even folks that might be fearful of these animals, they have uh, animal welfare concerns. And so the green garbage bag method, um, popping a balloon, you are popping, yeah, no, don't pop balloons, popping the umbrella. <laughs> I don't know where that one came. I guess, yeah, because somebody said, yeah, use balloons with water. It's okay, but then you're, you know, you have to make sure you're picking up that, that garbage afterwards. But there's so many ways to encourage a coyote to move away. And we do have a, a resource keeping coyotes away and um, that residents can utilize also first responders. But I guess I would really want to emphasize though, more often than not, and Lauren you know, can expand on this, there is always a reason for a coyote to respond the way that they are, whether it's dogs off leash or food attractants. And so as soon as the food attractants are removed, you see a shift and there's been compelling research done that also, I would say, enhances what we did with the aversion conditioning best practices. And so those methods of encouraging a coyote to move away, going outside your, you know, your residence, you know, banging a pot, using a very firm, loud voice, not screaming, and having intention. You know, you can't go out there and say, oh, you know, coyotes got to get out of here and talk softly. They're not going to understand that. They need clear messaging. And so with aversion conditioning, the techniques that we've identified that have been deployed by our canine response teams that are trained specifically to respond to different scenarios and each situation, you have to be able to assess that. What's happening here? No, you know what? You can't use a horn in the middle of the city because they're hearing vehicle horns honking all the time. You're not going to suggest using a whistle where there's sports fields because they're hearing whistles. And actually the whistle, when somebody's feeding a coyote, the whistle becomes a stimuli to have those animals come closer to a soccer field. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting, eh, Lauren? Like some mm. of the observations that you had novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the challenges as well is that, um, you know, on the one hand, it's, I do think it's important to have methodology that's accessible for uh, the public should they be in a situation where, um, you know, say there's a coyote in their backyard and they wanted to encourage it to leave their yard to have a tool that they feel confident using um, to get the coyote to move away. Um, but I think, um, you know, another, another thing that this research made clear is that the contexts are often so complicated that unless you have that sort of background knowledge of what to look for, it can be um, quite challenging to assess what's going on and then respond um, to get the results that you want. You know, for instance, um, you're not going to get the same results if you are trying to haze 
a coyote while you have an off-leash dog with you. You know, the coyote is responding to your dog as, you know, a threat to them or their family. Uh, so that's their primary, um, you know, priority at that point. So they're not going to respond to you in, in quite the same way. Or you're not going to want to haze a coyote around the den because obviously they're going to be reluctant to leave um, that space uh, and, and their pups unprotected. So you have to be able to kind of make these assessments and decide what the best course of action is. Mm, I love I love the nuance. It's, it really takes into account that these coyotes are sentient and alive and living beings with personalities and situations going on for them. It's not a one size fits all for this mechanical being. It's, it's, it's got personality and it's got needs and specific requirements for specific situations. Yeah. And I think that's part of, um, you know, Leslie can probably speak to this more as well, but uh, part of the, motivation for us to put this uh, research out there was, um, you know, seeing conclusions uh, like, you know, I, I waved my arms and the coyote didn't move away. So that means that they're an aggressive coyote and aversion mm -hmm. conditioning or hazing is not an effective tool. Meanwhile, you know, what were all the circumstances? What exactly did you do? What was your body language? What was the history of that individual and their knowledge of, you know, um, humans as risk or as, uh, you know, feeders. Um, so there's, yeah, there's just so, so much going on that it, um, often when people say that this methodology isn't effective, there's not enough context provided to understand really what were the outcomes and why, um, why that happened. I like that too, because it also takes into account the coyotes adaptivity. Like we, we understand, we can see these animals are highly adaptive and they can, they can fit anywhere then we can create or that the landscape creates coyotes can be found there. And um, it's likely that they'll become adaptive, adapted to some things. Like you said, the whistles in a sports field, that's something I never would even thought about, but it's, it, here's a wide open space, perhaps an area where a coyote might feel comfortable. I know that the sports fields, close by where I live are adjacent to riparian river stretches where I've seen coyotes moving through. So of course they've acclimatized to those whistles and that wouldn't be an effective uh, means of, of deterring them or, or encouraging them to leave. Hmm. But knowing that coyotes are not going to lay in the middle of a soccer field that's yeah. plowed, plowed down, the grass is manicured, there really isn't a food resource there unless it was a human handout. And mm -hmm. so when we see these kinds of situations, we, they really put us on notice to put our thinking cap on and think outside of the box and recognize what is actually happening. Um, we had officers that deployed aversion conditioning techniques and they sent me the video and they said, you know, but Leslie that, you know, the coyote kept, you know, circling back around us. And I said, well, I said, there was probably a fresh animal kill there and they wanted to avoid you, but they want their food. They're feeding their family. And they, they were absolutely floored because they said, you are, 100% correct because the coyote 
ran back, circled, and, and we're talking about a wide circle, but it was a little bit concerning for the officers because they didn't understand the behavior. And sure enough, that coyote picked up a squirrel that he or she had uh, captured. And it's being able to open your mind. And when you go out into the field and do those investigations, that you're going in with a clean template. You're not creating a story that you would like to tell. You're creating coyote story in the best way that we can in our shortcomings as human beings. And, you know, trying to add um, nuance and understanding behind the behavior. And so, you know, assessing their body language. Uh, I had actually done my thesis on uh, creating a coding system, observing uh, family dynamics in the body language, the tail positioning, the ear, the body, proximity tolerance, and a lot of my, my in the field research, we applied together, uh, Lauren and myself, when we were out in the field and we looked at measurements of proximity tolerance, how close are coyotes willing to get to us? And it can be pretty close when the reward is food. And so then that, the next human being that comes down the trail, they're going to assess and be curious and explore whether they can get um, a food handout. And so you know, then that we get into that whole um, situation of corruption of natural instincts and betrayal of their ability to take care of themselves through our direct feeding. Leslie, I want to I want to say that I want your thesis paper um, someday. Maybe I'll email you later about that. Um, but as also, I wanted to get to some of the more. I don't want to say theoretical because I don't think these are theoretical, but less maybe material questions, or maybe they are material. I I don't know how to frame them, but um, Lauren, in researching for today, I read about. Uh, your research in feral cats and feral cat sort of agency around homemaking and recognizing that some feral cats may want to be feral or want to be outside, want to be in those places that they're occupying you know, areas where humans, humans may not want them. And I was thinking about this and I was wondering like when animals reoccupy the urban spaces that they do in, in new or novel ways, or ways that humans didn't intend. How do we, how do we make space for that? Well, I think that's a really challenging question, and and sort of behind a lot of my interest in imagining, you know, really the, the central question of my thesis is how can we reimagine the urban as a space of more than human belonging. So in this context, as a space of coyote belonging as habitat and home for these families. Um, and my work with feral cats sort of um, initiated some of these questions for me when I spent time in colonies and saw the way that they were living contrasted with how they're often portrayed, uh, you know, in popular discourse and in, in the media. Um, and I think, you know, this is a challenging question with increasing global urbanization um, and many animal species becoming quite successful in cities. 
uh, and not to mention feralization of animals or the establishment of novel sort of ecological assemblages, whether that's through species migrations or, or various things. Um, you know, how can we deconstruct some of our anthropocentric assumptions about what the city is or what nature is um, and come to understand it in a way that's more more generous and compassionate and less about these sort of this dualistic understanding of the human um, and human spaces versus nature as something separate. Um, but, it, but it is a really challenging question when it comes to people's everyday practices, uh, what they assume the city should look like and, uh, and who they should be encountering in their day-to-day -day life within the city. Um, I, think, I think we are witnessing a shift where people are increasingly tolerant to living alongside um, various animals, but, but I think it's a, slow, it's a slow process as well, right? Um, sort of changing some of these cultural assumptions that have been ingrained for, for such a long time in this particular uh, context. So, so yeah, I'm not sure if there's any, any easy answers other than I think it takes some imagination and creativity and a real willingness to challenge your own assumptions and um, see, as you had said before, you know, see animals as, as individuals, as uh, sentient beings, as family members, um, and as, you know, just fellow inhabitants of this earth trying to make their way the best they can and, and really think about what that demands of us uh, as co-inhabitants. I just, I'm going to include in the podcast link, if anybody's listening to another uh, paper, The Anthropocene's Animal, Coywolves as Feral Co-Travelers, and uh, by yeah. Stephanie Rutherford. That's a really good paper that talks a lot about this stuff as well. And uh, I just love the work that Coyotes inspiring people to do oh, to really yes. reassess our position on the land, our our position as as colonizers, settlers, and mm -hmm. and rethink and reimagine the ways that we 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 interact with the world and and reassess what our what our priorities are and how we how we view the land and how we view the all the all the all the life forms that take up that space on the land. I think uh, we are blessed to have these incredibly beautiful, talented, creative canids in our communities. And they really do help us become better citizens to reevaluate, to dig deep, to shake up our belief system and actually be more tolerant to others that might hold a different perspective. And many times I've been at the negotiation table with a real diverse range of individuals and we come together. And I can say from a personal uh, place that my lessons that Coyote taught me about myself actually enabled me to do the work that I feel is vital and important on behalf of these animals, because I had to shed some of my own preconceived biases. And I'm always humbled by that. It, the impatience of, you know, wanting things to happen yesterday 
if even something as simple as signage going up in a community, well, it has to go through a whole hierarchy of, you know, corporate communications, legal departments, and then they have to be actually, you know, created in the shop, right down to, you know, when you have a, uh, for example, a group of uh, trappers that are called into a situation which appears to be conflict between uh, humans and coyotes and four out of five of those trappers say, no, we're not doing that here. It's a human problem. You need to educate or they will even suggest you need to, you know, reach out to Coyote Watch Canada. That's a huge shift. And I really believe strongly that building the human relationships is so, so, so essential and critical to us moving through and getting to a point where we can celebrate, you know, species like uh, the Eastern coyote in our communities. I want to talk about the future and, and maybe proactive solutions and what communities can do to be proactive in creating and developing that good coexistence framework. So what, what can we be doing before things escalate, before people are frustrated or scared or just move straight to sort of lethal control methods? Well, I think we've, um, you know, just in the, in the last few years of working uh, with your organization, Leslie, you know, I've seen some really amazing examples of communities who are wanting to go that path. Um, and I think there is a lot that can be done, but but through, you know, Leslie can speak to this more, but through this um, sort of open communication and partnerships um, and willing to really understand what, what works and what doesn't work and why. Um, and uh, as we highlight in the paper and as uh, Coyote Watch Canada highlights in all their work, uh, it often does come down to this you know, a, a more comprehensive coexistence framework instead of just sort of a piecemeal or post hoc responses to something that's going on, really thinking, you know, what does the community need to know? What information do we need to make available about living with wildlife, um, about being, you know, responsible in our relationships with wildlife, uh, whether that's from pet care practices or, um, managing food attractants uh, or ways to respectfully interact when you encounter wild animals. Um, I think there's a lot that we're sort of uh, collectively learning um, and, and a, lot of, a lot of folks in the community are willing to sort of do that work uh, and, and understand what it takes. Um, that was sort of one surprising finding from my research um, is that so often within the media, social media and news media, um, we see these reports of antagonistic relationships or folks who are quite afraid or quite angry about the situation. And so I was really expecting those to be the dominant voices, you know, in my interviewing and, and in um, some of the work I was doing with communities. And I actually found quite the opposite that the vast majority of individuals who reached out and were curious about my research or wanted to participate were saying that, um, you know, they understood coyotes are part of the environment. Uh, they understood that human behavior is a really um, important driver of 
conflict versus coexistence or how we interact uh, and, and that they wanted to be, you know, a voice for coyotes or for coexistence rather than seeing uh, the, the opposite perspective dominated in my research. So, um, yeah, so I think, I think there is really a willingness there and it's just a slow shift that's sort of ongoing, uh, but maybe Leslie, you can, if there's more specifics you want to add. Yes, yeah, so I think at the end of the day, when we look at the communities that have well-established coexistence programs, they become the champions for the next community that is caught in between old lethal shifting to non-lethal methods of addressing uh, human wildlife conflict. And, you know, recognizing that those relationships are so important. And it, it's the time tested and field experiences that have really laid the groundwork for not just uh, Lawrence and our research, but for other communities to look and reevaluate their own approaches to, you know, wildlife conflict, whether it's coyotes or beaver or bear or wolves or cougar. And I think, you know, I'm, I was, well, the last two decades, I've seen such growth and cooperative relation building between um, government and non-government. And I think that's, again, uh, in a testament, testament for who these animals are in bringing out the best in all of us. And, you know, I, I always would say to folks, they'd say, well, you know, they don't belong here. And I said, well, you know, they've been, their species, their DNA and their ancestry goes back to the Pleistocene era. <laughs> so they're a lot older than we are. So we have to somehow uh, establish and create the relationship that really is going to be the most compassionate, the most loving and the most successful. And I think how we see these animals is more about ourselves and not really about them, but, but there's such uh, vast opportunities to rewrite this narrative of, um, you know, how we, we view ourselves, our neighbors and our, the nature around us. That's a bit of a mic drop there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I love it. Oh. Yeah. I feel like I could just end it there. But I, I, I want to know, though, um, I was wondering if there's any ongoing or future projects that y'all are working on, either through uh, Coyote Watch Canada or Lauren through uh, your teaching or your PhD. What, what's going on now and into the future for you? Uh, Leslie and I have a few different, um, uh, other areas that we're still working on, you know, um, this was one piece we really wanted to put out together, uh, the best practices, uh, drawing on Coyote Watch Canada's, um, experiences and, and our experiences together in the field. Um, but we, we do have another, you know, little writing project that we're going to be starting up sort of speaking to, uh, a bit more of an ethnographic, 
uh, kind of approach to her experiences in one community and with one coyote family in particular. Um, so I guess a lot of my, as I said, a lot of my work in this um, for this thesis has been about restoring the city or reimagining the city in different ways. And so um, this has been in part through policy uh, in this paper in particular, um, but then I've also got some other work that's speaking more to methodologies, multi-species research methodologies, uh, which is a really exciting area that I'm very passionate about, how we can respectfully engage with other animals as collaborate research collaborators and sort of learning from them about their, their knowledge and experiences. Um, so sort of, again, breaking down some of our more anthropocentric or colonial assumptions as a researcher or as a you know, that you commonly would find in, um, in scholarship. Um, and then also sort of thinking more theoretically about urban theory and what it means to sort of engage a multi-species or more than human urban theory. Uh, so those are some of the areas that I'm, I'm thinking through. And uh, yeah, the next few years are a little bit up in the air, but uh, there's just so much amazing work that Coyote Watch Canada does. And I would love to continue working with them in future on, on various uh, elements of their work. If you could see, if your listeners could see this big grin on my face. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, this is a dream come true uh, for Coyote Watch Canada and all of our amazing, wonderful uh, volunteers that are the, heart and soul of what we do and uh, how we can, you know, help, help communities moving forward. But again, as I mentioned in the, in the beginning of our chat, you know, without Lauren's uh, vision and her, you know, tight detail to scientific methodology, but bringing a, a softer, gentler approach to doing this research and looking at more than a human world, we would be still doing what we're doing, but it wouldn't be uh, presented in the scientific community. And I think it's vital because these are really kind of tricky and interesting research areas. And so I'm open to whatever and I know the team is open to where, whatever and wherever Lauren decides to go with the research. And then of course, you know, we do get, uh, we have a lot of offers now coming in to uh, participate in different various research projects and, you know, PhD candidate type of um, study, but we have to always keep in mind what our values are, what our mission is. And if we don't have much influence in terms of the ethics of it, it would probably be a project that we would uh, kindly step aside from. So we're looking forward to the future and we're looking forward to agencies actually using our best practices paper and reaching out to us and offering that training for new first responders and, um, you know, Lauren is a big part of that. And she's really, uh, you know, our, our connection to the scientific world in providing evidence and data that supports 
non-lethal methodologies. So yeah, we're very grateful. I'm very grateful for y'all taking the time out of your schedules and the work you do just so you could talk on this, on this radio show, this podcast and teach us a little bit more about coyotes and their urban complexities. It seems like when things move to the urban environment, sometimes they get more complex and I appreciate understanding that detail a little bit more. And I also want to say that I'm really grateful uh, for your analysis, uh, for the perspectives that you come with and using those perspectives to challenge those old colonial uh, ideas and anthropocentric ideas on how the land is a tool for us and how it really breaks that down and recognizes there's, there's a lot more interdependence and, and just mutual inhabitation going on. And I really appreciate that. If folks want to find out more about the work, uh, you can check out uh, levanpatter.wordpress.com. That's it's would sound like levanpatter.wordpress.com, and also coyote watch Canada all one word.com. And y'all have your Instagrams and uh, Twitter accounts, I see. And so folks want to check those out, go to those websites or go to toknowtheland.com, find the episode, and I'll have all the links on the show details there. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Lauren, for, for being on the show. Byron, thank you so much for being interested in having us. It was a real honor and pleasure. Yes, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Again, you've been listening to To Know the Land, either broadcasting on 93.3 FM uh, from the University of Guelph or on your favorite podcast uh, host out there. Thank you again to Lauren and Leslie, uh, Lauren Van Patter and uh, Leslie Sampson uh, from Cardio Watch Canada for sharing all their info, all the stuff that they're learning about, all their analysis and critique and, and their, their thoughts and feelings and experiences with these coyotes that they're studying in urban landscapes. I want to do more to learn about how we can coexist with these animals. And I feel like these two are on the, on the edge of, of, of teaching us all that. And again, they attribute they're on the edge of learning from the coyote themselves. So way to go here's this awesome human animal partnership uh take care check out the website to know the you can always email me at to know the land at gmail.com if you have any questions show ideas or suggestions uh, hopefully there'll be some fun new interviews coming up soon